1952, C.S. Lewis published the third book in his series, The Chronicles of Narnia, titled The Voyage of the Dawn Trader. The movie rendition came out a couple years ago, December 2010. Most people are familiar with the first book published in the series, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. However, in The Dawn Trader, only two of the four original children are featured, Lucy and Edmund. The other two, they're older, they're off doing other things. Lucy and Edmund go to stay with their cousin, Eustace Scrub, who's an unpleasant child. He doesn't believe in Narnia. He ridicules them for their stories that they tell. But then one day, they're sitting in their aunt's house, and there's a painting on the wall of a ship at sea, and it starts to come to life. And it sucks them in, and they're, once again, transported to Narnia. They find themselves in the middle of the ocean, right next to this vessel titled the Dawn Trader. The Dawn Trader is a ship of the new king of Narnia, Caspian, who, whom the children helped make king in the previous book. And Caspian now is on a quest to find the seven lost lords of Narnia. Accompanying the crew and the king is a talking mouse named Reap Cheap who went along in hopes of finding Aslan's country behind, beyond the sea. As the story progresses, they visit several islands where they find and rescue the lost lords of Narnia. Near the end, they reach the island of the star and they find the three remaining lost lords in a deep sleep trapped. The fallen star who lives on the island, Ramandu, says, the only way to rescue and awaken the three lords is to sail to the edge of the world and to leave one member of the crew behind never to return again. So they set off to do that. They keep going east. They eventually get so far, the water becomes so shallow, the ship cannot keep going. Now Prince, or rather, King Caspian wants to be the one who, who goes on to sacrifice himself to rescue the three lords, but Aslan visits him and says, no, you shall remain. Lucy, Edmund, Eustace, and Reepicheep will go on. The foursome continue on in a small boat until they finally reach this wall of water like glass that extends into the sky and it's the end of the world they've reached the end of the world later we learn that Ribicheep the mouse is the one who goes on to cross to the other side he, he takes a little shell and he sails up the water crossing over never to be seen again but it is implied that he indeed reached Aslan's country now along this time Edmund Eustace and Lucy they, they see a white object on the beach there growing, glowing bright they get a little bit closer, and that object is a lamb. The lamb starts talking to them. The lamb invites them to have breakfast. He has a fire prepared on the beach and some fish roasting on it. Lucy asks the lamb if this was the way to Aslan's country. Not for you, said the lamb. For you, the door into Aslan's country is from your own world. Edmund was shocked, and he exclaimed, Wait, there's a way into Aslan's country from our own world? There is a way into my country from all the worlds, said the lamb, who then transformed, as you can probably guess, into Aslan the lion. Aslan proceeds to tell the children that they will never again return to Narnia because they're too old. And this saddens the children, not, not because of Narnia so much, but because of Aslan. They can't imagine not ever getting to meet Aslan again. But Aslan tells them that he will meet them in their world, for he is in their world, but by another name, and they must come to know him by his other name now. In fact, this is the reason he brought them to Narnia in the first place, that they would come to know him better in their own world. And then in a moment, they are transported back into their aunt's house in Cambridge as if they had never left.
Now, how long would it be before they saw Aslan again? Just recall the conversation from earlier in the story. Lucy was saddened that Aslan was leaving. He said, do not look so sad. We, we shall meet again soon. Please, Aslan, said Lucy. What do you call soon? And he replied, I call all times soon. I call all times soon. Of course, the Chronicles of Narnia stories are an allegory where everything represents something else. Aslan represents Christ. The children represent believers. And for our purposes this morning, I want to pick up on this line, which is such a great line, where Lucy asks him, what do you call soon? And Aslan replies, I call all times soon. And C.S. Lewis, who's putting words into Aslan's mouth, he understands how God and Jesus interact with time. He understands that to God. Indeed, all times are soon. God does not sit around in time waiting for events to pass like we do. God holds all events and all times in his hands. And with God's perspective of time in mind, this means that the end of the age and the return of Christ, they're they're much sooner than you think. In fact, they're, they're just around the corner to God. This was the Apostle Peter's point in 2 Peter Chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, which read, But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. The same understanding of time enables Peter to write in 1 Peter, chapter 4, verse 7, the verse we looked at last week, to say this, that the end of all things is near. The end of all things is near. It may not necessarily seem that way to us. It's been 2,000 years. Why hasn't Christ returned? But to God and his reckoning of time, it's just around the corner. Whether Christ will return in one day or in 1,000 years, God simply wants his people to live in a constant state of readiness. An expectation, living watchfully and faithfully until the end comes, whether by way of of death or Christ's return. Jesus is coming back. The end of all things is near. Therefore, you better be ready. You better be prepared. You better be faithful. This is how God expects you to live in light of the end. Can we get more specific than this, though? I mean, how exactly... Are we to be ready? What does God want us to be doing to busy ourselves in light of the nearness of the end? The Bible speaks to these questions. Peter gets more specific and more practical himself in regards to how we need to be living daily in light of the end. He has this phrase, the end of all things is near, then he builds off of it. The end of all things is near, therefore, he says, therefore, therefore, this is what you should do about it. This is how you should live in light of this end, and we find that in 1 Peter 4, 7, and the following verses are an exposition of, of how God wants us to live in light of that ever-present nearness of the end. With this in mind, we're going to read our passage. If you haven't already, open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4, once again. 1 Peter chapter 4. In a moment, we'll read together verses 7 through 11. 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11. 
He writes, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. So that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. In this text, God inspires Peter to give us three activities to focus on in light of the end so that we may be ready for the return of Christ. Three activities to focus on in light of the end. These are three actions, three duties that need to be your ever-present focus in this life, leading right up until the end of your life, whether that comes by your death or Christ's return. And what are these three activities? They are simply prayer, love, and service. Prayer in verse 7, love in verses 8 and 9, and service in verses 10 and 11. Last week, we decided when we approached this passage to to slow things down, take a closer look at each of these three activities, spending an entire sermon on each one. These activities, they're, they're so good and so essential to the Christian life that we need to slow down for them. You know, stop the car, pull over, get out, explore a little bit instead of just zooming past them. And that's what we are, in fact, doing. Last week from verse 7, we handled the first activity, which is prayer. In light of the nearness of the end, God wants us to be active in prayer, praying to him, trusting him, depending on him. Prayer expe- expresses our dependence on God. Prayer is our means of spiritual strength Prayer even helps us overcome temptation. If you remember in the context, these early Christians were being persecuted for their faith, and they weren't losing their lives yet. That that would come later. But at this early stage, they were being socially persecuted, ostracized, ridiculed, insulted, demeaned, discriminated against because of their newfound faith. And along with this persecution came this, this temptation to return to their old sinful ways. If they would just go back to their pagan ways and sins, the persecution would end. That, of course, would be the easy response, but also the wrong response. And prayer prayer helps you fight against that temptation. If you are, even here today, tempted to return to an old sinful way of yours, a sinful lifestyle, prayer is God's mechanism for helping you stand strong in the face of that temptation. Needless to say, this was the first activity to focus on in light of the end, which was last week, gets you caught up from last week, prayer. This morning we're moving on to the second activity to focus on, which is love. This comes from verses 8 and 9, which is where we're going to camp at today. Read verse 8 and 9 together with me again. He says, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. We're going to spend our time today slowing down for these two verses, and that's it. We're just going to 
expound them, dig through them, find out just how God wants us to spend our time with this second activity, loving one another in light of the end. We're going to start with this first phrase in verse 8. He says, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. Love is spoken of as the paramount virtue in the Christian life. It's above all. In fact, Paul said the same thing. 1 Corinthians 13, 13. Faith, hope, and love abide in these three. But the greatest of these is love. Love is the most dynamic and lasting virtue. The word for love here, it's the familiar word. You probably have heard of it, agape, which is love of intelligence and purpose. It's a love that desires the welfare of others. It's a selfless love, a sacrificial love, putting others above yourself. And I trust you know this, nothing is more important than your love for the Lord and then secondly, your love for others. Do you know how many commands there are in the Hebrew law, the Torah, the law containing their, their commands? 613. Just imagine having to know and live by 613 different commands. But the amazing thing is, as Christ taught, all 613 of those commands, they all funnel through just two commands. The two greatest commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. And here in 1 Peter 4, 8, he is picking up on the second of those commands, loving others. And just right off the bat, can I just say already that this is so important. If you get this wrong, if you're not doing plain and simple what 1 Peter 4, 8 says, you are way out of line with God's will. You may think you're a very righteous person, godly person, good person, but if you're not loving others like this describes, you're not even close you're way off. Just like Paul again said in 1 Corinthians 13, you may think, even if you work great miracles, but you don't have love, it's worthless. It's no good. So first, just understand the importance of this love directive. If you know deep down that you are an unloving person, you struggle with just showing others love, that's got to change now, first, foremost. You can't even go further. Nothing is more inconsistent than an unloving Christian. and You just need to get this straight. Speaking of the importance of loving others, it's not the first time Peter has brought this up. Turn back to chapter 1 really quick and look at verses 22 and 23. 1 Peter 1. Back in 22, you remember this? He said, Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is through the living and enduring word of God. You notice in chapter 1, Peter rooted this brotherly love in salvation. The new birth experience produces this love. When God saves you, he, he remakes your spirit. He quickens your spirit, gives you a spiritual life. And that comes with this supernatural ability or capacity or, or desire to love others. It's just going to happen. It becomes part of your new nature. You can't stop it. Loving others is part of your nature now. Can you stop a dog from barking? 
nor should you be able to stop a Christian from loving others. This is why, by the way, the Bible says that if, if someone calls themselves a Christian, but, but they're so characteristically lacking in love, it, it's probably a sign that they've never been born again. Now back to 1 Peter 4.8. Peter again uses this word in verse 8 that he used back in verse 22 of chapter 1. He doesn't just say start loving others. He says keep loving others fervently. Fervently. This word comes in the form of a present active possible. All that means is that it's not a direct command per se, but it carries the weight of an exhortation. This should just be a characteristic of you. You should be characterized by loving others fervently. Now, how would you characterize a quarterback? He throws footballs. How would you characterize a mailman? He delivers mail. How should you be able to characterize any Christian? Oh, he or she loves others fervently. That's what he's saying. Now, I don't doubt that you all know what the word fervently means, but when you, when you take a, a look back at this word's original usage and its root meaning, it just gives you such a, a richer picture of what it looks like. To keep fervent in your love for others literally means to love them at full stretch. This word was used of a horse galloping where every muscle was just being stretched and strained to the limit. Now, I don't know if you've ever ridden a horse at full gallop. You probably haven't, most of you. But the same would apply. The same picture would work with an Olympic runner. You've all, sure, seen the Olympics. Just picture that 100-meter dash. When those men or women run, every muscle in their leg is just stretched and strained to the limit to help them reach those top speeds. And you know they're maxing out when the difference between first place and second place is, is one one-hundredth of a second. Or if you can picture the high jumper just straining every muscle in his leg to clear that bar by just a fraction of an inch. That's the picture behind this word fervently, just stretched to the limit. And this is how your love should be characterized. Just fervently, stretched to the limit. The love in mention is not an emotional, warm and fuzzy type of love. It's not sentimental. This love is a love of act, and it requires a stretching of every spiritual muscle you have. I mean, why is that? Why, why do we stretch or strain? Why does the runner stretch his muscles? To enable him to do that which is near impossible, to, to accomplish the difficult. And it's the same with your love. God knows this, that people, even other Christians at times, can annoy you get on your nerves. It can insult you. It can demean you. At times they can even sin against you, maybe even harm you. But guess what? Do you think God still wants you to love them? Yes. Is that hard? <laughs> you better believe it. When someone offends you, you want them to pay or you want to be the one to pay them back. And so it requires the stretching straining of your every spiritual muscle to still do that which is difficult and love them. And this is what Peter is talking about here. And the standard of extreme fervent love came from Christ's own mouth back in the Sermon on the Mount. And I want you to see this firsthand, so turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. 
Matthew chapter 5, the first chapter of the Sermon on the Mount. Someday I look forward to preaching through Matthew 5 through 7, one of my favorite passages, the Sermon on the Mount. Some amazing teaching. And in chapter 5, in particular, Christ is correcting the Pharisees' misuse of the law in several instances where they, they just got it wrong by focusing on it wrong or overturning it with their own laws. We're going to jump down all the way to verse 43. Matthew 5, verse 43. He says, You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. This first part of his phrase is quoted from the Old Testament, which in your translation, it may be why you see it in all capitalized, all caps lock. The second half, though, not quoted from the Old Testament, the Pharisees and the scribes, they warped the law, using it to justify their hatred for, for the goyim, the, the Gentiles, the nations, and they made it a law or a practice to hate others, hate your enemy, hate those not like you. But Christ reverses this, verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Jesus bases his exhortation to love your enemies in God's own love. In in a real sense, God loves even those who are wicked. He sends them temporary blessings during their time on earth. That is a form of the love of God. We call it common grace. This doesn't mean the wicked escape the justice of God for rejecting Christ, but in a real sense, he, he does extend a love to them. And verse 46, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Here Christ is taking the two groups of people that the Pharisees hated the most the tax collectors, and the Gentiles. And the point he's making is, look, even they love the lovable. Even they love their friends and families. But God's people, you, are called to an even higher standard. You're called to love the unlovable, the difficult to love people. You're called even to love enemies. And that is hard to do. Think of that person at your workplace or that relative you see every six to 15 minutes at work. They just on purpose ridicule you and just poke jabs at you and insult you and demean you for your faith. They, they, they hang on every small thing you do wrong and they hold it over your head, calling you the hypocrite. They would love nothing more than to see you fall. But even that person... He's saying you have to somehow still be patient with, love, even bless, as Romans 12.14 says, bless those who persecute you. Is it any wonder that that Jesus follows us up with verse 48 in Matthew 5? He says, therefore, 
Therefore, you are to be perfect, as your Heavenly Father is perfect. This is God's standard. It's nothing less than perfection. And in the context, this applies most directly to your love for others. It's a standard of perfection. Now, additionally, Christ is making another point with this verse. He's saying, you can't be perfect. This is God's standard, but you don't don't meet this standard. No one does. Which is why you need Jesus and his righteousness. As a side note, you know, if you're here today, you've come, you have not come to commit your life to Jesus in faith for salvation, for forgiveness of sins, for reconciliation with God. Today is that day. Look at this scripture. This is God's standard that you're going to be judged by this right here, verse 48. Do you meet that? You pass that test? You don't even come close to being perfect as God requires you to be perfect. Well, then how's anyone getting to heaven? Who's going to make it? That's the whole point. No one. No one meets the standard. No one's going to make it, which is why you need Jesus. That's your need for a Savior. Your sins make you and I far less than perfect. No one's making it in unless they accept what God has done for them. You need to embrace what God has done for you through Christ. Coming up to Christmas, we remember the time where God sent his son into the world, but he came to die on that cross and rising again to pay the penalty for your sins, to deal away with them, covering them, such that when you believe, you are granted forgiveness and you are granted Christ's own righteousness, such that when you look to Christ in faith, God looks to you as if you are perfectly righteous like Christ. And this is the only path to heaven to eternal life. So what are you waiting for? Your sins surely already weigh on you enough. Deep down, you know you're separated from your your creator. You know you will never see peace in this life or the next until you get right with God. And it's only through Christ, by believing on him and following him for the rest of your life and making that change. Do this today. Let's back to this verse now. When you do come to Christ... God's standard does not change. He still calls you to the high calling of loving others, even the good, the bad, and the ugly. Now, if God expects you to love even your enemies with this general common love like he does, how much more do you think he expects you to love others in the church, others in the family of God? All the more so, of course, this is what Peter is getting at. Let's turn back to 1 Peter chapter 4, if you haven't already. I want to talk about this practically for a moment. That this greater love we need for those in the church, this love at full stretch. Churches are, are like hotbeds of conflict. Did you know that? You probably did. You will probably encounter more sources of conflict at church than you would at your softball league or your gym membership or your your bingo club or, or whatever, whatever you do. Why is that? Because the church incorporates all these extremely different people and then jams them together into a tight little group. And that is a recipe for conflict if you are not extremely loving. And over the ages, people have failed in the love department. 
They've let their petty differences get in the way of their relationships. And they have not loved one another as they should have. And that just functionally handicaps the church. I. Howard Marshall, in his commentary, he gives a humorous but hypothetically true description of a local church. And these names are all made up. But this quote shows you how some people think. And from my experience, this is so true. I, I know people who think like this. that They see other people just based on what they have wrong with them. This is a quote. He says, There is in your local church, Anne, who doesn't know much about hygiene and is frankly smelly. Bill wears you out with incessant talking. Kathy is unspiritual. Ron doesn't get along with Evelyn. Fred treats his wife badly. Jean is an awkward teenager, never knowing how to act with courtesy and discretion. Hillary often grumbles. Irene has a different set of interests and values. There's Kevin, to be sure, who's really quite saintly but rather drab as a person. None of them is very easy to love at full stretch, he continues. He says, and yet, love is the answer to the problem. We find a whole host of offenses, real and imagined, in other people. And only love will overcome them and regard them as of no account, because love covers a multitude of sins, end quote. That's so true. I've only been in ministry relatively for a short time, but... Even I have heard so many people complain like this. They just view other people through the lens of what's wrong with them. Yet the answer to your conflicts and complaints with others is not to complain, but but to love. How relevant is this teaching for today? And how loving are you? Ask yourself, how do you view other people? Do you overlook their uh, complaints, your differences with them? Are you being loving? This brings us to the second half of 1 Peter 4.8. Remember today we're just pacing through verses 8 and 9, unpacking this second activity to focus on, which is love. Now we get to the second half of verse 8. He says, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Speaking of the relational importance of love, he says, love covers a multitude of sins. You've probably heard this verse before, used or misused in several ways. I want us to get to the bottom of that. What what does that mean? To say that love covers a multitude of sins. I start the word for sin here. It's pretty straightforward. It's hamartia. It just means sin. It pictures sin as missing the mark, like an archer missing that bullseye. Just falling short of God's standard. That's sin. It's pretty straightforward. So how can you cover someone's sin? What does that mean? This, of course, is going to go back to what this word for cover means. The word in the Greek is kalupto. I think that sounds pretty cool, kalupto. Its basic meaning traced back what was of hiding or burying something in the earth. It came to generally mean to, to cover something, to conceal something. In the New Testament, it can be used literally sometimes. Like the disciples, they're in that boat. They're at sea. The storm comes. And the waves literally cover the boat. Sometimes it's used figuratively, just concealing or hiding something. So what does it mean in 1 Peter 4.8? Well, first, just keep in mind, Peter is not talking about the relationship between God and man. Your love for other people does not affect or cover or deal with their sin before God in any way. You can't atone for someone else's sin. You can't pay for their sin before God. And that's not what he's talking about. In the context, Peter's talking about relationships between fellow believers, between you and me, between one another. And in that sense... Love covers a multitude of sins. 
To cover then means to hide sin, to conceal it from view. This is talking about dealing with sin and then dealing away with it. Now, still, it may not be what you think. I I need to clarify. To cover sin does not mean to cover it up like you would a, a scandal. Probably the most famous scandal in America is the Watergate scandal where they were just trying to conceal evidence of wrongdoing. That's not what this means. To cover sin does not mean you just look the other way. It does not mean you, you dig your head in the sand, you pretend you didn't see anything. It does not mean you ignore the sin. It does not mean you whitewash the sin pretending that is good or okay. You've you got to get all that clear. Covering sin in no way leads to condoning sin or accepting sin. Not what he's talking about. However, when, when you cover sin, you are in a sense trying to help the other person hide their sin. Hide it away. This would involve forgiving them personally and then helping them access God's forgiveness. And to help you get this more, I want to give you just a perfect illustration for it. And it comes from the Bible itself, Genesis 9. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to repeat the story. You remember what happens, Genesis 9. After the flood, Noah, his family, they get off the ark. What do they do? Well, they start farming. Good idea. Eventually, Noah plants a vineyard. And then one day, he gets drunk. And in his drunkenness, he exposes himself, and his nakedness is a great sin, a great shame to himself. Now, his three sons respond to his sin in two very different ways. Ham, his first son, by the way, who names their child Ham? His back then is, I'm sure, different. But Ham saw his father's nakedness, and he immediately gossiped about it. He, He told his brothers about it. He ridiculed his father. This is the opposite of covering sin. This is exposing sin. You're trying to use it vindictively against a person. Rub it in their face. But Shem and Japheth, the other two, when they discovered their father's sin, what did they do? They, they went to great lengths to literally cover it. They took a garment. They laid it across their shoulders. They, they paced backwards, and then they covered their father's nakedness. All the while, they did not ridicule or disrespect their father who had fallen into sin. And this is, this is a great picture of what it means to cover sin. Shem and Japheth, they did not condone their father's sin. They did not approve it. They did not ignore it. They did not whitewash it to make it appear, okay, not a big deal. But instead, they dealt with it righteously by covering it. This involves several things. It, it, they helped their father put an end to his sin, to stop his sin. They did not expose his sin. They did not rub it in his face. There was a gentleness and a reverence to their approach. And they were not trying to drag their father through the mud. They were just doing what it took to help him be done with this sin and then to to put it away. This is what it means to cover sin. And love is the driving force behind it. Love enables you to do this while hatred, the opposite, stirs up strife. It makes you want to to kick a person while he's down, to to kind of drag them through the mud, to expose them in their sin, use it against them in in a vindictive manner. That's hatred. But when love for others is lacking, every little word, every little act that someone does, you hold it in suspicion. Everything they do or say against you, you want to make them pay for it. There's no grace, no mercy, no patience, no long-suffering, Only vindictiveness, wrath, anger, and unforgiveness. 
Now, of course, you should not be this way. When someone sins, when they even sin against you, when they offend you, you still need to love them. This is why he said, by the way, fervently, that you're going to be stretched. This is going to stretch you at times. But being stretched, instead of trying to, to get them back, to expose them, to harm them over their sin, you want to love them, you want to cover their sin, help them deal with it. When someone offends you, do not needlessly expose their sin, gossip about it, drag them through the mud over it, help them put an end to their sin. This does not preclude Matthew 18. If you see your brother's sin, go and show him his fault in private. At times you have to do that. The most loving thing you can do sometimes for someone is to rebuke them, reprove them for their sin, help them access God's forgiveness. But if you do so, do so with patience, gentleness, compassion. Galatians 6.1 Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Or here's this verse. This is one of my favorites. 2 Timothy 2.24 and 25. 2 Timothy 2.24 and 25. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. You seem to be constantly thinking, asking yourself, how can I deal with this situation? How can I respond to this person's sin with love and not with hatred? How can my actions and reactions be characterized by love? Even if they're your enemies, even if they have offended you or harmed you, You still need to love them. Just like God loved us at one time while we were his enemies and sinners. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. That's Proverbs 10.12. When you do this, when you properly respond to another person's sin, patiently, forgivingly, lovingly, it's like taking a wet blanket and throwing it on a fire. It just douses it and diffuses the situation that you're covering their sin. You're helping them cool down. But when you respond to someone's offenses in in a hatred, anger, impatience, wrath, that's like pouring gasoline on the fire. It's going to erupt. It's going to become volatile. Someone will get hurt. But the one who covers sin, who helps get rid of it, puts it down. A house divided cannot stand. Peter is writing all this to promote a unity and peace in the church. That's his ulterior motive here. He's trying to maintain that essential unity in the early church. And the last thing that this early church needed was infighting. The persecution was hard enough on the outside. The last thing they needed was fighting on the inside. Peace, unity, harmony, love, like four pillars the church had to rest on if it were to stand. And the same is true today. Now, speaking of preserving peace and unity within the body, Peter adds verse 9 in 1 Peter 4, which really is just an extension of loving one another. That's all it is. We get to verse 9 now. He says, Be hospitable to one another without complaint. With all the persecution ramping up, the last thing the church needed was infighting. The second to last thing the church needed was a lack of hospitality. And this really is an apt application of what it looks like to fervently love one another. The word hospitable 
literally means love of strangers. It is an extension or fruit of loving others in general, and it came to mean loving others by providing for their basic needs, food, shelter, clothing. This practice was absolutely essential to the early church. Without hospitality, missionaries would be stunted, traveling Christians would be in harm's way. You know, back then, there, there were no Ritz-Carlton's for people to stay in, no places of luxury. There were some inns, yes, but they were uncomfortable and unsafe places. The inns were usually associated with crime, immorality, debauchery, stuff like that. Kind of like today. You know, today, there, there's some really sleazy motels in a bad part of town. You just look at them, you know. You know nothing good goes on there. Now, I'd rather sleep in my car than, than sleep in some of those places. And for traveling Christians back then, this was often the case. Either they slept in the wild, or a Christian took them in and cared for them. And thankfully, there were many hospitable Christians who took in the traveler. Another expression of hospitality back then came in the form of hosting the church at your home. There were no church buildings for 200 years in the early church. And so they met in private homes. And just imagine that. Imagine if the church came to your house every Sunday. How would you like that? Would you be okay with that? And we normally think of hospitality as having friends over for dinner, but not so much biblically. Your hospitality is really put to the test when something inconvenient comes up. It's different when your friends come over. You're happy to open your doors for a small circle of approved friends. Just people you know, you, you've vetted them. You know they're not too weird to be sitting on your couch or sleeping on your couch. But how would you respond to Christians who are strangers needing a place to stay? This is the true test of your hospitality. What if a group of junior hires needed a place to meet every Wednesday night throughout the summer? Your house is on the, you know, the perfect option. What would you do? Would you open your home? However you're answering that question in your mind right now is telling you how hospitable you are. And this is a love issue, and I hope you say yes. You know, if you have a house, if you have resources, if you have a, a bit more of food, shelter, and clothing than you actually need, just remember, it's not yours. God gave it to you. Your home is not a badge of wealth. It's not a hiding place from the world. It's not a castle. It's not a museum. It's not a garden. Your home is a tool that God has given you to provide shelter for your family and care for others as well. If you're concerned about others taking your resources, just remember they're not yours to begin with. God has given you your wealth, and you need to, to stretch your love in this area as well showing hospitality even to strangers. Now, if you do this, if you are stretching yourself to care for others in one way or another, you might be tempted to complain. Someone needs a place to stay, and one day turns into two days, turns into two weeks. You might be tempted to complain. And I'm not saying you should endorse total freeloaders, but genuine situations may arise which push your hospitality to limits. So Peter adds in this verse, be hospitable to one another without complaint. To complain, to grumble, to murmur, to mutter under your breath or in your mind, this is the opposite of, of doing things with a cheerfulness, which is a problem because God wants us to do all things with a happy heart. And really such complaining is against God himself because he is the one who orders your circumstances. He puts you in that situation. You're complaining against him. In short, you need to stop complaining and start sharing the things the Lord has given you. 
Hospitality extends beyond the, the act of giving people food, shelter, and clothing. It, it also extends to the attitude behind the act. If you open your home to host a family for a week, you complain the whole time under your breath. Is God pleased by that? Do you think he counts that as spiritual fruit? No. If you complain, you're proving that you did it for the wrong reasons, not from a happy heart, just wanting to serve the Lord, and that is unacceptable. So show a true love and true hospitality, both in act and attitude, without complaint. So here we have it. We have the second of three actions, activities to focus on in light of the end so that we might be ready for Christ's return. It's no surprise that love makes the list. It's no surprise that love is above all on this list. The end could come at any moment. You could die tomorrow. Christ could come back tomorrow, either one. This means your time now, it's valuable, it's precious. You need to spend it carefully. So what should you be doing now in the meantime? And the second activity is to be loving. God wants you loving others fervently. Fervently love one another from the heart. This includes forgiving others, covering their sins, helping them be rid of it at times. And this includes lending a helping hand, extending hospitality to others with a joyful spirit without complaint. I want you to take this reminder home this morning and apply it. Go out to lunch, have a good day. But forget the sports and forget the weather for a moment and just think. Ask yourself, how can I do this? How can I be stretched. Where do I really need to be stretched in my love for the other people at Berean Bible Church? Think of that that person that it's hard to love for you, a little unlovable to you, and ask yourself, well, what do I need to be doing to stretch myself to love them more? Take this home. It's up to you now. If you combine this with prayer from last week and then service from next week, you have a perfect recipe and you're well on your way to living that life that is pleasing to the Lord in light of his return. Pray with me. Lord, we anticipate your return each and every day. We, we, we pause now and we think of, of all the difficulties in life, the hardships, the trials, the tribulations, the sickness, even death and, and life is, can be difficult, life can be short, and it just makes us long all the more so just to be done. Done with this life, on to the next one, the one we are assured that we will have with you because of what you did through Christ and sending him to, to give us that new life. So we pray that you return quickly, and in the meantime, may we busy ourselves with these things. Keep us free from distraction and focused on prayer first and second, as we learn today, love. The church is to be known by its love for others in the world, its love for others in the church. Help that to be so true of Berean Bible Church. I, Lord, I so desire people to come into these doors and say, wow, this is a loving congregation. These people actually love one another. And I do believe that already is true. Help us to excel still more in our love for one another all the time, Lord. We take this home with us and apply it. Love you first and foremost. Love others just as well. I want to lift up Rod really quick. One of the elders here, pray you heal him in his sickness. Give him a, a comfort and a quick recovery, if it is your will. At the same time, we pray you use this difficult time in his life to draw him ever closer to the cross, remembering Christ's suffering, and help him to use this as a great opportunity to witness to those around him of, of the hope and joy he has, knowing that he will be with you. So bless him, bless us all as we leave from here. In your name we pray. Amen.